Welcome and thank you for joining us on episode 11 of Research in Focus podcast series. With us today is Dr. Joel Hang Hartsey, a lecturer and newly appointed vice president of the Canadian Association for the Study of Discourse and Writing, and Dr. Ismail Fazel, also a lecturer in education at Simon Fraser University. Together with Dr. Steve Marshall, Joel and Ismail started a new research project titled Exploring Student and Instructor Experiences with Remote Instruction in a First-Year Academic Literacy Course. In addition, both Joel and Ismail are advocates for educating scholars and students about so-called predatory academic publishers, and they are publishing their research in a forthcoming article. Join me for the next 25 minutes to learn more about these two fascinating areas of discussion. So thank you for joining us. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, share with us your academic background and your, some of your research interests. Well, uh, thank you very much uh, for having us. So Joel and I both went to UBC, actually. Uh, we're in the same program. I uh, did my uh, PhD in uh, language and literacy education, uh, specializing in academic writing genres mostly, and also assessment. I also have specialization in measurement and evaluation from the Department of Educational Psychology at UBC. And I have been with SFU uh, since September 2017, serving as a consultant to CELTER and now uh, the Center for Educational Excellence. Great. Thank you. And how about you, Joel? Yeah, as Ismail said, um, I also did my doctorate in the Department of Language and Literacy Education at UBC um, with a focus on what we call TESOL there, we call TEAL at SFU, um, teaching English as a second or additional language. Um, and uh, like Ismail, a lot of my work is in the field, um, a field that we call second language writing. So that has to do with um, the teaching of, of writing to people who uh, don't originally speak the language that you're teaching writing in. Often, often this is English, but the field encompasses other other areas. Um, I've, uh, so yeah, my work has been kind of on, uh, on that, on um, a lot of my work earlier was on um, uh, language ideology, specifically ideologies of errors. So how do readers react to what they perceive to be errors in texts that they read? Um, and then uh, I've been at SFU as a lecturer in the Faculty of Ed since 2015. Uh, where I teach in uh, the Foundations of Academic Literacy. I've also taught in the uh, uh, TEAL programs, both undergraduate and graduate. Um, and uh, I'm kind of pursuing still this interest in, um, in second language writing, but kind of more situated in, uh, in the work that I do at SFU. So with, with the FAL students or with graduate students uh, or some other, some other contexts. Sharing that with us. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your project, especially about the predatory journal things um, as we move into the podcast. And uh, just before we start with that, what called you to, to pursue research in your specific field? Well, uh, so I am a second language uh, writer and user and learner, but also a, a second language examiner so as, uh, as you know, a researcher, uh, what I think sparked my interest, you know, to embark on uh, more and more uh, projects. Uh, I am still learning the language, but I would like to be able to hopefully make contributions to sort of make it easier uh, for other uh, second language uh, learners and writers, you know, to be able to uh, learn uh, more substantively and more easily. And then also as 
an educator to be able to uh, uh, teach based on what I call researched, informed uh, pedagogy and practice. And uh, also I'd like to uh, do research, which is practice informed, would uh, have uh, some takeaways uh, and implications for uh, not just me and people in my context, but beyond that. So, so disseminating uh, these ideas. And how about you, Joel? Yeah, I, you know, Ismail and I sort of come from different worlds. I mean, sort of literally in that we, you know, grew up and were originally educated on different sides of the globe. But also um, having sort of been a, a so-called native speaker of English for, for my whole life, um, I, you know, I tell my, I tell my, my students, my Teal students, that um, language learning and teaching is an encounter with otherness. Um, however you want to think about that. And I feel like that's what attracted me to, to this field was um, learning something about perspectives about the world um, that were different from mine. Um, and having gotten involved with that, learning how complicated it is, right? I think that um, I got into this field um, thinking of, um, I, I guess I, I, didn't, I didn't probably realize the implications of sort of the inequality of power, for example. Uh, that are that's involved in the teaching and learning of English uh, around the world. So I became really interested in that when I um, after my master's degree, I, I taught English at some universities in China for a couple of years, and I just became really fascinated with how English had become a cornerstone of the Chinese education system, um, and that's what pursued kind of prompted me to pursue my interest in learning more about how English is taught and learned, English writing specifically, which was my interest, is taught and learned sort of globally, right? And how the things that I, you know, the way I was taught, I was taught to, uh, I was prepared to teach American college students. That was my training, you know? And then I came to China, I had to throw it all out the window um, because I was in a different place, right? I was in a different setting, a different educational context, different culture. Um, and so that's kind of what got me on, on the path toward, um, toward doing more, more work in second language writing. Right. And I really like the quote that you use where it's an encounter with the otherness. And, um, you know, although I consider English to be my first language, uh, I, you know, I, I'm originally from Malaysia. And so similar to your experience is that English was also taught in, in my classes, in my schools, as like the cornerstone type of thing. Um, and it really resonates a lot <laughs> with me. Um, that's great. And can you tell us a little bit about some of the projects that both of you are working on together? Um, yeah, so Isma and I are working on sort of two different things. We've, we've known each other for a long time and we, we have a lot of similar interests, but it's only recently that we've been able to collaborate on some projects, uh, which I'm really excited about. So um, the, ones, the one that we're working on, uh, or several that we've been working on the last few years that I'll mention here, is we've been, uh, we've been doing some work on uh, academic publishing, specifically in the area of what has been called predatory journals. And this is an area that I think more and more academics are, are learning about and grad students are learning about. Um, this is, uh, it's a complicated area, but I think to put it in a nutshell, this is academic journals that uh, take advantage of the open access model to operate in ways that um, might be unscrupulous, um, that people might be aware of. And that's not to say, of course, that all open access is that way. Of course, it's, it's not. Open access has been, has been a fantastic boon to, to sort of knowledge production and dissemination, but um, there are a number of um, journals of varying quality that exist, and we're all familiar with getting emails soliciting us to submit to journals we've never heard of, right? Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, telling us that, that uh, they've read our, our brilliant research and they, 
you know, when maybe we haven't, maybe when maybe we haven't published anything. Um, so we uh, we've done a few projects on that. We we did um, a a small study of a cross section of these journals where we examined whether they actually evinced features of being sort of truly low quality, um, which was published a couple of years ago in a an edited volume by um, Mary Jane Curry and Teresa Lillis. So to simply say that there is a category of academic journal that is sort of in the bad predatory category, and then there's another good category, This we, we found this was too overly simplistic, right? We, we ended up finding that there are a lot of regional variations, journals that serve regional needs that may look different from so-called um, high-impact international journals. Um, uh, but we also did find a number of journals that did appear to be um, very poorly uh, slapped together, uh, to say the least. So uh, we're really, what we're really interested in right now is kind of raising more awareness about this among uh, academics, particularly academics who are at the beginning of their careers or who are outside um, what Lillis and Curry call the Anglophone Center, who are outside sort of, for lack of a better term, the centers of power of sort of Western academia. Um, and maybe I'll let Ismail um, pick up on that a little bit too. Essentially, uh, that's what we found and uh, what, you know, uh, emerging research is also showing, and that is that there is this wide spectrum that cannot be captured, you know, by just, you know, one term. Also, I should point out that there are lists that is blacklists. So Jeffrey Beale uh, was uh, the person who did a great service to the community, uh, scholarly community, by uh, bringing to the fore this idea that, you know, there are potentially predatory journals. And there was uh, a website with, uh, you know, a list or working list. Uh, so other people also have come up with blacklists, you know, white lists and uh, different sets of criteria. But the thing is, none of these criteria uh, can uh, accurately uh, help uh, uh, in particular, novice academics and scholars identify predatory or low quality or scam journals. And uh, so there is, uh, in a sense, no litmus test, no acid test to help differentiate and distinguish accurately uh, low quality, poor quality journals from uh, truly exploitative uh, scam uh, journals. So uh, the problem with those lists uh, is that uh, they, some of them actually obscure these, you know, variations and uh, there's no uh, monolith, right? But this, you know, vast variation in heterogeneity. And, and it's interesting that you talk about predatory journals and I was just wondering if you can extend it a little bit more about, because of my own experience, I've been contacted by, you know, what we can say predatory book publishers and also predatory conferences, which seems like they put a lot of work into the whole, you know, show. And then, and and as, as a new scholar, you you pick these up. And you're like, oh, maybe this is my chance to publish and 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 share my scholarship. Like, uh, how 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 can we tell which are predatory and which are not? It's so hard, right? And I think even the word predatory. I mean, it it's it's hard. Uh, as we said about about journals. It's hard to really be able to say clearly that the intent is malicious of some of these organizations, whether it's a publisher or a journal or a conference. Um, I, I've certainly heard horror stories of people thinking they were accepted by a prestigious conference and then showing up and finding it's them and 10 other people in a, in a single room at a hotel, you know, something like this. <clears throat> but I, I think, you know, so much of this is really about um, academic and sort of literacy socialization into 
um, into a community. And we see this, I think one, one of the reasons that this resonates even with the, the types of te undergraduate teaching that both Ismail and I do is that we do the same thing with our undergraduates. Um, I have to, it's, it's really interesting to be able um, to see the parallels between having to explain to a graduate student why they shouldn't submit to a journal they've never heard of Right? And then the next day, walking into my undergrad course and explaining to a student why the article that they cited for their paper is from a low quality journal. So it's actually, these are actually all, it's, 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 um, it's a spectrum that can actually sort of follow one through one's whole academic career. Um, and the, the, the thing that I often advise, and it's easier to do when someone is later on in their career than when they're just starting out, but the thing I often advise is, um, you and the people around you know your field better than somebody you've never heard of emailing you, telling you that this is a prestigious journal that you should submit to, right? Um, and so I, I think that um, trusting one's, uh, one's um, peers and mentors becomes really crucial. And that's something that we are sort of, we're arguing for um, adding more of this into training of particularly um, graduate student and novice scholarly writers um, in a piece that we have forthcoming in the Journal of English for research publication purposes. We're sort of advocating for um, Im implementing this actually into workshops and courses that are being taught for graduate students um, so that people are aware from the beginning um, of what to look out for. And I, I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Ismail. Uh, to build on uh, what Joel was saying, uh, I would say this is probably part of something that maybe can be called uh, critical digital literacy of sorts, or some sort of critical literacy for sure. Academic writing is, uh, I mean, you, you can't write without sources, essentially, for most of the genres. Uh, these sources, if some of them uh, might be suspicious, students need to develop, need to be sort of scaffolded into, need to be trained to develop a compass of sorts. So uh, developing that compass so that you know that discernment, that perspicacity, right? Uh, when you want to source or when you want to publish, which is, I think, you know, publishing is more high stakes and more consequential for one's career and reputation. Well, a rule of thumb, uh, in addition to what Joel mentioned, is that try to publish where you read. How does impact, I guess you talked about, you know, this compass for trying to gauge what types of journals and how, how to determine if the journal is predatory or not. Now, how much does things like impact factor play a role as, as a measuring stick? Um, from the side of sort of the, the newly proliferating um, and, and perhaps lower quality journals, um, I, I would suggest that impact factor has become a bit of a red herring. Uh, simply because these types of things are touted by journals um, that may not have the actual um, sort of institutional prestige um, that, uh, that they might otherwise have gotten from being long established in their field or being, um, being associated with respected scholars in their field. So um, a lot of, of um, newer journals one hasn't heard of might tout uh, we have this impact factor or a, a very telltale one is we are indexed in the following in the following indexes, but then some of the indexes may be fake. Uh, one one particular um, shibboleth that I uh, like to tell people is that if a journal boasts of being indexed on Google Scholar, that's probably not a high quality journal because Google Scholar is not an academic index, right? It's a it's a search tool. 
Um, so I, it, from my perspective, I think, um, and as Ismail said, you know, re publishing where you read, I think is always, is always the best. I know impact factor matters to some people, particularly in the sciences. Um, I don't know, Ismail, have you, have you come across any, any thoughts on, on the importance of impact factor? I've been thinking about it, but I, you know, I haven't really looked uh, deep into it. But I also think that yeah, impact factor first can be uh, bogus, right? They can just purport to be, I don't know, uh, listed uh, in this that database or uh, indexing system. And second, uh, well, the thing is, uh, there are journals. They are they can be reputable. But they're not necessarily, you know, they don't bear a high impact factor. They don't have a high ranking. But people know them. And mm -hmm. some of them are even open access. Uh, uh, in our field, for example, response to writing, for instance, you know, was uh, started, was launched by a well-known scholar. Uh, but mm -hmm. it's not, I don't think it, it has any significant, you know, impact factor or anything like that. Well, and also, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, impact factor is partially based on sort of how, how, much the papers are cited, um, and and citation practices vary from field to field, right? So there are some some fields crank out uh, crank out papers at rates that other fields don't. So yeah, that's a very very good point. Um, and the reason I ask is because uh, you know, especially for graduate students, I think that's one of the maybe the easiest thing to look for to see if a journal is reputable or not. If I were advising my own grad student, I would say. Never even look at the impact factor. Do not allow yourself to be bamboozled by it. That's great advice. I mean, it, because it goes both ways. Because if it's so high, like, oh, I'm not going to bother. You know, this is so high. I can't even get in. Right. So I want to move on to talk about your next new project. And I think it, I feel like it, it's definitely related to what we've been talking about. And it's your most recent one uh, entitled Exploring Student and Instructor Experiences with remote instruction and of course your academic literacy course. And I think, Ismail, you were speaking up a little bit about uh, the, the, the notion about academic literacy and how that in, could involve um, being able to tell, you know, who's published what and what's what in what journal. Can you speak a little bit more to that and also share with us uh, the implications of that particular project? Uh, well, in response to this pandemic, well, institutions had to no choices but to uh, go online and uh, you know yeah. go use the digital space to uh, essentially teach their students and use it as a learning. But the thing is, it's not just teaching, but it's also learning, right? That we have to think about. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not just the delivery from the perspective of institutions. Also, the uptake and you know whether or not students are learning, how engaged they are, how. We are assessing them. So there, there's a whole host of issues that we have to think about. When it comes to language classes uh, or writing classes, there might be an additional layer of complexity that might be even make it harder for students who, whose uh, native language is not English to be able to access, mm -hmm. to understand, and to engage with mm -hmm. uh, the curriculum and the content. And also the rules of engagement, right? Uh, they're not always clear. Yeah, and and I thought maybe you could touch a little bit more on uh, the part where you speak about, you know, the move to remote online learning. And I mean, as a student, you know, I found that one of the key things that were lacking was the, like, for example, the engagement, but it's the engagement through the social, the social context, where there's a loss of actually being in that physical space with the instructor and with the others. And uh, can you comment a little bit on that? 
There's so many cues that happen sort of non-verbally and that have to do with just being in, in a space together um, that, that I, and I, I do sometimes, and I think one of the, one of the goals of this project is to learn more about if the students are experiencing this, but I think sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect. I have, I have a lot fewer students asking questions of me, right, in, during this term. It's definitely impacting sort of the, the, not only the sort of student and instructor interaction, right, which is one, one important part, but it's also impacting sort of like the peer interaction as well, because a lot of important sort of um, academic and, and literacy socialization happens through peers. When you turn to your friend and you say, I didn't quite catch what, and maybe you say it in your, in your shared first language too, you say, I didn't quite catch what he meant about that. How are we supposed to do the bibliography? And that learning happens there in a way that it maybe isn't now. And that doesn't mean there aren't other ways that it can happen now, but that's something we're interested in exploring. Another concern for me is, uh, you know, I keep asking myself, are my students engaged? Uh, are they learning? So although we have some features, you know, in Zoom, like breakout rooms, but it's it, it, it's not the same as it's not on par with, you know, face-to-face, uh, -face, closer, you know, uh, intimate interaction that one could have in a real classroom. So I think the hope here is just to learn about the experiences of both the students and instructors through this project. And then our hope is that this is going to inform people going forward. Uh, we don't know how long there's going to be remote instruction for. Could be one more semester uh, for SFU, certainly it's one or two more semesters. Uh, it may be three or four or five more. So we really want to be able to share these experiences with other people who teach in similar contexts and, and start to look at what might be some, what are we hearing from our students about their experience and teachers and how can we make the online environment uh, make this kind of literacy learning work better in the online environment. Right. And can you speak a little bit more to the students who um, are, you know, using English as an additional language? Like how does being online on Zoom uh, create a greater challenge for them? Because uh, there's even more discomfort with that. I think right now we haven't had anyone direct. Yeah, our data collection hasn't started yet. Um, norms of interaction within academia, that's actually part of academic literacy, right? When you walk into a university classroom on your first day, there are actually some people who already are uh, know some of the rules more than some others do. And it's it's not only based on language. It's based on, It can be based on a lot of other things and your background and these types of things. Um, but students uh, who, I mean, one of the simple ones that instructors talk about a lot is, how are you? What? How are you supposed to email your instructor? What are you supposed to say? How are you? How do you start the email? How do you? How do you um, politely ask for, say, an extension on your assignment? Or, um, you know, how do you speak about um, some difficulties you might be having in a way that's sort of academically appropriate? So I think we're in a space right now where academic literacy and just the way you would interact with your peers online, it's all beginning to meld together a little bit in ways that that um, I think for me as an instructor, certainly, I, I, I hadn't been aware of. So I think it's, it's a huge learning curve for everybody. And if on top of that, you're trying to learn a language you're not as familiar with, or a set of cultural expectations that you're not as familiar with, right, which is almost even more key, um, you're in an interesting bind. So I think that's, that's something we want to dig into. Um, because we are concerned that there are students who might already feel a bit marginalized. Could, that could be happening even more to them right now. So I, you know, we don't know yet what our findings will be, but that, that's something that we want to learn more about. I, I, we look, I look, I mean, for me, I personally, I look forward to what you, what you find in your, in your project. And uh, yeah, um, we're almost at the end of our podcast. So I just want to end it with a last question where, um, you know, there are a lot of scholars and potentially graduate students who will be listening to this podcast and thinking, hey, you know what, this is something 
I want to do research and this is something what you know I want to pursue to learn more about. So what would you say to possible future graduate students who are interested in your particular field of research and study? What, what advice can you offer? They would be interested, if someone would be interested in uh, pursuing, you know, the, this uh, research on the so-called predatory uh, or gray area of uh, publication that uh, we are missing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the academic community that can potentially uh, be contributing to, you know, the awareness raising. And I'm also probably looking at uh, the policies that uh, uh, you know put this pressure on uh, academics to uh, have to publish. You know, and so probably these are some of the lines of research that I would say are worth pursuing uh, systematically. And Joel, I tell I tell my undergraduates I don't know if they believe me, but I usually tell them on the first day of class that writing is the most important thing in the world. The sheer importance that writing has had in human society and culture literally from the beginning of recorded human history, because we wouldn't have recorded human history without writing. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's endlessly fascinating to me. And I think there's, there's nothing, there's almost nothing I could think of that writing doesn't touch. Um, and it's such a, it's such a unique, um, it's such a unique human thing um, that I think uh, anybody who starts delving into this field will just find it richly rewarding. You learn, you not only learn about texts and how they work, but you learn about people and what we do with texts, right? So I think that uh, whether you call it academic literacy, as we tend to hear, or whether you call it writing and discourse studies, which is what another Canadian uh, research community calls it, or composition studies, which is what it tends to be called in the U.S., or second language writing as a subfield, um, there's just so many endless iterations of this of this kind of unique human cultural practice um, that I, I don't know, this isn't advice, this is just me trying to get people excited about it. Um, it's, re- it's really exciting and interesting, and I think you'll find it, I think anybody would find it really rewarding. I know I certainly do. So. Thanks so much for sharing. And um, yeah, I think I, for me, I, I, I agree with you as well, right? Writing is so important because um, it also connects us with each other and things like that. So um, yeah, that brings us to the conclusion of our podcast. Thank you so much to both you, uh, Ishmael and you, Joel, for sharing your insights. You. Uh, we look forward to hearing about your project, um, about the outcomes and how things pan out for you during the remote online teaching. Thank you again, and thank you to the audience for listening in. 